Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining Compassionate Las Vegas first live webinar where we are having conversations about racism and discovering a pathway to systemic change. I am so honored to have our esteemed panelists share their views with us tonight and to have all of you joining in the conversation. We've already received so many great, compelling questions. I can't wait to hear what all of our guests have to say about them. But before we really get started, we want to highlight one of our efforts to overcome this issue on a broad scale, starting with our youth. And that is the Camp Anytown funded through the Golden Rule license plate. Now, this is a way that you can get involved and help us to keep this camp going, to grow it, and to help make the world a better place. So with that, Nikki, would you please share the video? Treat others how you'd like to be treated. And that's the Golden Rule. Camp Anytown has taught me that knowledge is power, and if I utilize my voice, I can make a difference in the world, no matter how big or small. I learned that as long as we stand together, we can accomplish so much more. What Camp Anytown has taught me is that I am not crazy to think I can change the world. I'm crazy if I think I can do it alone. Camp Anytown has taught me that just because I'm different does not mean I don't belong. I learned at Camp Anytown to be more compassionate because you never know what somebody else is going through. Anytown is a no-cost youth leadership camp that trains high school students in diversity, community, and inclusivity. When you choose the Golden Rule license plate, you play a part in a local camp that helps shape a better tomorrow. Learn more at dmvnv.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I'd like to give a special thank you to all of our community partners that have made this event possible. Special thank you to the HRC Human Rights Campaign, Faith Organizing Alliance, ADL Nevada, the Episcopal Diocese of Nevada, the City of Las Vegas Mayor Faith Initiative, Nevada Minority Health and Equity Coalition, the Interfaith Council, and of course, all of you and to our very special panelists. To start us off, start us off the right way here, we have none other than Reverend Leonard B. Jackson. He is the Executive Director at Faith Organizing Alliance. He is an Associate Minister at First AME Church fame, and he is a board member of the Interfaith Council right here in Southern Nevada. He has a special message for us, so I urge you to pay attention, and I'll turn it over to you, Reverend Jackson. Let's go. Thank you, and thank you. Welcome to Voices of Faith in Southern Nevada and beyond as we join together here this evening to rise up to address racial issues. The tensions, divisions, and injustices that currently beset America are symptoms of a long-standing illness. The nation is afflicted with deep spiritual disorder, manifest and rampant materialism, widespread moral decay, and a deeply ingrained racial prejudice. These evils will be eradicated only by a love that is translated into action. 
in such action as deliberately going out of our way to befriend each and every person we come across as we travel our way. Appreciating the indispensable contributions of each individual in this world and joining hands with all in the creation of a, a new world. See, we believe in fundamental goodness and decency of the masses of our fellow and fellow citizens. We are confident that American John, as we do for spirituality, that they desire genuine justice and prosperity for everyone. See, the, 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 the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the United States, they quoted from the Quran in chapter 13, verse 11, that God will not change the condition of a people unless they change what is in their heart. And our Christian scripture tells us also that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, but we also are to love our neighbors as ourself. And understand this, that to heal and change the conditions of social injustice and a planetary degradation of our land, it must be done by everyone. But in order to make a positive change, we have to make that change from within. And it starts here in our hearts. In the same vein, the wise have pointed out that our biggest environmental problems are not loss of biodiversity or climate change or ecosystem collapse. At their roots, the monumental environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. But we, we, we align ourselves with those seeking justice for the death of George Floyd and countless others. I can't stand another day going around and waiting for someone to be killed, especially when it's an injustice in our lives. May all members of our community with, with conscience, whether you be religious or not, stand firm in your active, compassionate opposition to the virus of systemic racism the virus of homophobia, the virus of xenophobia that discriminates against any member of our common humanity. I say to you today, may we all take a pledge to stand up, speak up, and march together until all God's children can shout together in victory that we're free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. My charge to you, keep on marching, children. Keep on marching till freedom is won. Move on. Thank you. Thank you. The greatest pleasure I have today is to introduce a friend. Some people need no introduction. And I knew this the first time I met her in her temple, where she served at one time as the president, if I'm not mistaken, of her temple. I'm speaking of no other than Senator Jackie Rosen, who is on the job, doing a great job for her community and her country. So without any further introduction, Hey, come on down, Senator Jackie Rosen, my chum. Wait, let's see. Okay, hang on. I'm trying to, technology's great when it works. So 
I want to thank you, Reverend, but I also want to say, how do I follow that? It was amazing. It was uplifting. Um, it's the right way to enter into all of this. Um, and I am so grateful for your friendship, for your words, for your fight, for everything you do in this community. I, it, so many, and I'm looking on my gallery screen, I'm pointing, I know everyone can't see me. I wish we were in the room together. I want to thank uh, Gard Jameson, another old friend from um, my synagogue days and, and, and other things, and uh, inviting me again to be here today. Uh, Will, uh, I'm pointing to you. You can't see yourself where you are on my screen. You're moderating today, of course, uh, uh, Commissioner Jones, Latoya Holman, Elizabeth Hunterton. You're on uh, on the panel. Nikki, I know you're working behind the scenes there. I've known Nikki and her family since uh, they were young kids in the elementary school. And so that's Las Vegas. We come together. We know each other. We're friends. We're family. We talk. We think about it. And together, I think we come out stronger. That's why I wanted to be here today. And I am thankful that you uh, let me kick this off because you know what? Our nation is in a lot of pain. On May 25th, we lost George Floyd to a senseless murder at the hands of enforcement officers who swore to protect our nation, protect our communities. On March 13th, we lost Breonna Taylor in another senseless murder by someone who swore to protect us. On February 23rd, we lost Ahmad Arbery. And if it weren't for the video, it captured. I, I can't even um, think about that video sometimes. The video that captured his murder, the other tragic murders, there's no telling where we would be now and i can tell you that there are stories out there i don't have to tell any of you this where there were no videos but we know that things have happened and so we are here today to bring all of this to light and to bring it out in the open and to move forward and the long list of uh those that have been taken from us they should not have died in vain so Rayshard Brooks, Elijah McClain, all of the others, the list keeps growing. We need to honor their memories and we need to take our nation from grieving and from distress, moving forward into conversation, into action and to change. That's why we're here today. And so like all of you, I experience sadness, anger, pain, outrage, all of the emotions over the things that we know and the things that we don't know. And in the midst of this violence and the unrest, we've seen our communities um, in some form all across this nation come together, come together to stand with each other as allies and friends and partners to learn and to grow and to understand, um, understand each other. Activists, faith leaders, everyday citizens, young and old, every background, every one of those folks who've come across um, the last month or so, however long it's, it seems in quarantine, we've time is, is, uh, is long and short all at the same time. But every one of them have come together to protest and say enough is enough. And that's why we're here today. And so when I watched all of the protests and all of the marchers and 
everyone who came, like we said, young and old, every community, we saw it across the country organically happen. That actually gives me hope because it means people were motivated to get up out of their safe space, sitting in front of their television and say, I stand with my brother or sister. I stand against this. It is strong, it is powerful, it is meaningful. And we all need to do a lot of reflecting. You know, um, I've had so many roundtables. Of course, I'm looking at Reverend Jackson again. I've had conversations with our faith-based leaders, our community leaders, our law enforcement officials, my peers. I'm talking to school superintendents, educators, first responders. I've been talking to everyone asking them what they think, what they feel, what they think they can do, what they know in their heart they want to do and they need to do. And this is the beginnings of that. Uh, we all have to do our part, every one of us, to make this world a better place. If we all take care of that corner of our world, each one of us, that all adds up. And we can make real change. And we can do the th things that Dr. King dared us to dream about. And so I, I remember... Uh, from my youth, watching all those speeches on television when I was a young girl. And now I'm here able to have this platform to be able to, to do this. And I am proud and humbled in, in that role. And so with that commitment, commitment I have here, not just as a community member, but now as a community leader, a leader in our nation and in our world, we all have the responsibility to act in whatever form or fashion we can in our communities we have to can't we can't just say we support change we have to take the meaningful steps to do it we have to there is no choice there is no turning back i'm proud to say that uh, with my colleagues senator booker and harris and so many others i was proud to be an early co-sponsor of the justice and policing act with senator duckworth the police training and independent review act because we need a better community we have to work with our law enforcement we have to address the needs we have to stop the bias uh, in our police departments we have to be sure that justice is done that uh, uh, any indictment that rises up uh, that demands justice, we have to meet it there. And we need to make that easier. We have to see justice prevail. And I believe we can also help to do this to achieve that uh, systemic change through education and learning. It is a component. What we teach in our schools, the books we read, the conversations we have. Uh, I was talking with a group of students and I said, you know, we need to expand the reading lists in, in our libraries. I said, well, that's not enough. I said, no, but if you read, it's just a piece of the puzzle. If from kindergarten on, you're learning all the different histories and diversity and you can understand that. That sets you up for having conversations when you're older. So you have education and you have learning. It is a component. It's how you make cultural change starting in our schools. That's why last week I helped introduce the 1619 Act. And this legislation, I believe, is uh, so important. It's going to be um, giving through our African-American Museum, the National Museum of African-American uh, History and Culture, we're gonna provide with them, uh, for them, through the 1619 Act, the resources that they can develop curriculum for school districts all across this country and provide 
that teacher training. So when school districts and teachers want to give out information and learn, they have a central point where they can get this information. It's good. It's quality. The teachers can get trained. They don't have an economic barrier to getting it and bringing it to their families and to their students to have this learning and these discussions. I am so proud of that. We've done that in other areas, and I think that it's important that it has that central place, trusted place where it comes from through this museum. And so uh, we're going to try our best to get that act passed and make that happen so communities and schools around this nation can begin working with our youth to have these conversations and make change in our schools. And so we have to do a lot more than that. But so in order to achieve a more just society, we have to improve our awareness and our understanding about African-American history and about the black experience in our country. Uh, this kind of change, it's not easy. Most change is never easy. We're meant to be, I can speak to the Reverend, some things were meant to be uncomfortable, right? We are meant to be uncomfortable. That's okay. That's where you know that things are happening, right? And so that uncomfortableness, but these conversations that happen, it means that we're working together, united in our pursuit of justice and pursuit of tolerance and equality and understanding that we can make these conversations and friendships meaningful. It is important. These injustices have happened. They have taken far too many black lives. I don't want to see any more lives taken. So we start today. We start today. And that's what we're going to do. And that's why we're here now. And I am so grateful um, to have so many friends in this community. I know that uh, what a great place Nevada is, but I especially know Southern Nevada, my home for 40 years, the tremendous heart and spirit and community that we are when we put our minds to it. And so uh, I do have to leave this discussion, and next time we'll try to stay longer. Uh, this came on at the last minute, but I want to tell you that I have um, a few of my team, my amazing team members on. I have Nettie on. I have Jamarian on. Uh, they're going to stay on the call. They're going to listen. They're going to take notes. They're going to observe. Because one thing I know for sure is this, is that my role now is multifaceted. It is to legislate where you can, because you can't legislate everything. So we're going to legislate where you can. We're going to educate where we must and where we can. And then we're going to enlighten, illuminate, and inform where we can. We're going to shine those spotlights. People doing good things, like I said earlier, we're going to highlight them and show them up as those shining examples. And people who aren't, well, we're going to shine a light on them too. And those are the things that we can use these public spaces and each one of our pulpits to do that. And so my team is going to be taking back some of the things from your discussion and the discussions that we have going forward. And we'll continue to talk about this, and I will do my part. I pledge to do my part to illuminate, educate, inform, and legislate everywhere we can to make the change happen. So thank you so much. Um, I'm going to leave it back to, uh, to all of you, and uh, I hope that your family, your friends, everyone, please stay safe and healthy in this difficult time through the pandemic. It is really important. And... Um, 
I hope I see you all in person very soon. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Senator. We are honored that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to be a part of this. That just shows that it's important to you. And I hope everyone heard her mention the importance of pressing into the uncomfortableness of it all. This conversation is going to be good, but it may get uncomfortable. And that's where change really takes place. And Senator, I want to let you know that 1619 Act, we're behind you 1,000%. We believe it will pass. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good panel, everyone. Bye-bye. So again, I want to say thank you to our partners that have made this event possible. And just a quick review of our agenda. So you've just heard from our incredible senator. In the next few minutes, we'll hear from several panelists. Each will spend about five minutes sharing their perspective on this particular subject. And then we'll dive into open, honest conversation. And in this conversation, we encourage you to ask questions and give your feedback and include your comments. So first, we'll have uh, none other than Latoya Holman, then the fabulous Miss Elizabeth Hunterton, and then Mr. Commissioner Justin Jones will uh, wrap us up with our uh, panel presentation. But before we get started, I want to share my vision for this. And if you would, just imagine that you have awakened from a three-year nap. The world is in awe of Las Vegas, not just our dazzling strip, but the high standard of living for all of our residents, the non-existence of homelessness, the extraordinary school system, the broad diversity in every level of every organization. Take a moment to envision what is possible. Now, Think about what happened to allow this kind of success. What part did you play? What did you wish for that helped Las Vegas not only reach this level of success, but to sustain it? Well, that's why we're here now. Our panel is made up of extraordinary individuals who will share their unique perspectives. Tonight is just the first of our three conversations where we will discover dream, design, and deliver to the people of Las Vegas systemic change. I ask that you extend grace and listen with curiosity through this process of appreciative inquiry, where we address the absolute need for systemic change. And we do it by focusing on our strengths and creating action from our belief in what can be. Remember, we all hear from our own experiences. Each of us experiences the world as we are, not just as it is. So listen closely, listen attentively, listen honestly, and assume positive intent. Know that we are not on different sides here. We are a single light shining through the prism of life, expressing many hues, and all of these hues are beautiful. We may use different words and may mean different things from the words we use, but that, my friends, is simply the art of conversation. We all win when our goal is to hear, to listen, to learn. So please, I encourage you to ask your questions, even the tough ones. Just type them right there in the Q&A box. Take a moment, if you haven't already, to share this webinar on your social media platforms. It is streaming live on Facebook as well. So if you want to live tweet and do all those social media things that I know nothing about, please feel free to do that as well. But most importantly, let's create actionable change together. And now I'd like to introduce Latoya Holman. 
Latoya works as the Director of Community Outreach for the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Foundation, which fundraises to support fallen officers, provides community safety programs, and strengthen the relationship between the community and our police officers. Latoya leads and coordinates all marketing initiatives and is an official spokesperson for the LVMPD Foundation. T today, she is with us as a concerned citizen, as a member of our community, as our sister. And she's done incredible work in our community, including working with the Human Rights Campaign Las Vegas, one of the largest LGBT civil rights organizations in our country. She currently serves as a member of the National Board of Governors and is a member of the National Executive Committee for HRC lending her voice as a proud African-American ally, businesswoman, and advocate to the equality movement. And I have to mention, she is a proud lifetime member of Delta Sigma Theta sorority. So gotta give a shout out for that. So without further ado, Latoya. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction, Will. And thanks for throwing out the Deltas for me. I know they'll love that. <laughs> Um, I come to this space just as me. Um, I think we all have titles and things and different hats that we wear. Um, but one of the things that I really, um, a, a goal of mine is to always just arrive as authentically as I possibly can so that the conversations can be as real as possible so that we can get to the place that we truly want to be. Um, so when I was talking to, to Nikki and I was trying to figure out how to approach this five minute introduction, I thought I have to know where I came from to really know where I am. And so I went back and, and I processed the fact that I'm really looking at things with a couple of different lenses, my lens, of course, and my experiences, but also my father's. And so I wanted to share with you a little bit about his journey, because I think in order for you to truly understand the way I view things, you really have to understand the world that was set up for him and what enabled him to make me possible. Um, and so I, I'm just going to throw things out there, and it's, I'm not a teacher. So please, if I'm off with the wording, forgive me. But I, I so, so we start in my father's history, in our history with the Civil War, we know in, in 61, 1861. And then we jump to the, the freedom of slaves, the Emancipation Proclamation of some of the slaves in, in, around, in 1863. Then in 1865, we get to the final freedom of slaves. Then we jump to 1866, where Black Codes became common. A lot of people refer to them as Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow codes. Um, and then we jump to 1870 when we supposedly had the right to vote, right? But that really wasn't the case. I think we all know that. And we jump ahead and we go to the rise of the KKK. So my father hasn't been born yet, of course, but I'm, I'm trying to set a scene for you. So we have the rise of the KKK, um, and then we jump to 1896, separate but equal. We've got Jim Crow laws, um, and we know the damage that that caused. And we jump to 1909, when one of my favorite organizations in the world, that I'm a proud member and supporter um, and leader, 
um, under the leadership of Roxanne McCoy, the NAACP is founded in 1909. And then my father is born in 1935. So my father was born in rural Texas. So he obviously was experiencing discrimination at very um, high levels. He was living through the Jim Crow South at that time. So we'll let him stay in that space for a minute. And then we jump to 1941, World War II. We're all familiar with that. My father's six years old at this point. And then my father's 19 years old when we start to have laws passed around um, the integration of schools, which we also know, um, you know, back in 1954, that wasn't the case either. Um, then my father's 20 years old, when Emmett Till is beaten, um, you know, shot and thrown into a river. So this is the space that my father's living in, okay? And he's trying to live his best life at that time. Um, so then we jump to uh, my father's 20 years old, 1955, Rosa Parks refuses to get off out of her seat on a bus. These are all things that we've heard of, some of us have read. Um, so we kick off you know, the civil rights movement around that time. But remember that Vietnam is now starting and my father serves in Vietnam. So not only is he serving in a country that he's on, on paper had the right to vote, he was unable to vote through voter suppression and intimidation, okay? So he's serving a country that he, he doesn't even have a voice in and he's not safe. So then I was blown away by this when I was going through all these, all of this. Um, you know, my father's now 27 years old when the first black man is legally um, allowed to and, and fought for the, the right to be able to go to a white college in the South. So imagine that, 27, okay? So then he's 28 when four little girls are blown up in a church in Birmingham, okay? So that's, that's a major life experience for my father at that time. Um, so then in 1963, MLK talks about a dream that he has. We all know that, we love that dream. And at that time, you know, my father's 28. So then um, in, 1965, the Voting Rights Act passed. So remember, my father's already served in the war and, and hasn't voted, was, was able to, but hadn't voted. So he's now able to vote. Now we jump to 33 years old. In 1968, Martin Luther King is assassinated. So someone that my father has revered, his adult life is taken from him and a symbol of what we were to become is taken from him at 33. So what I need you to imagine is just, let's see, two, 70. So five years later, I'm born. So my five years later, I mean, that's just unbelievable to me when you look at it at this in the scheme of what this man has seen and what he has endured and what he's had to overcome. So here I come, I'm born in 1973. Um, so my father chooses to move my entire family to 
the white area of um, California called Fair Oaks, appropriately named Fair Oaks, right? So I moved to Fair Oaks. I, I'm the only white, black. I'm the only black student in my school. I'm the only black person really in my entire neighborhood or segment of that city. Um, and I don't know really anything about myself other than what I'm able to get my mother and father to tell me. Um, they did that intentionally because our school systems are really funded through our property taxes. And my parents knew that. And so my father knew if I move her to a white area and I spend all my money in this area, she's going to get the best education possible. So thank you for that sacrifice because I did get a wonderful education. But what we what we learn and and uh, what we we were so aptly you know reminded of by um, Senator Rosen is that I wasn't even in that education. I wasn't my people that looked like me weren't even really in my history books. So I decided to go away to a historically black college so that I could expand that knowledge. And I did, I went to Clark Atlanta University um, and I'm a proud graduate of, of that historically black college. I lead you to all this to explain that I'm, you know, yet I have a master's degree. I am employed, I have a great job. I work in a community and I'm surrounded by love all the time. I mean, this call is an example of that. In order for me to be in this role and in order for me to have this level of privilege and access, it came at, um, out of the sacrifice of many. And I, I hope we can all kind of get to that space so that we can understand that in order to move forward with the racism that we're all faced with at every level at this time, we have to understand that when we arrive to these conversations, we all arrive with so much. There's, there's so much that we're made of that like the different lenses that we're viewing things through. And a couple of those lenses are Latoya Holman, you know, black girl from Fair Oaks, California, um, with great opportunity ahead of me and great accomplishments, but also Latoya Holman, daughter of Troy Holman, who really had a journey. He really struggled. Um, I'm experiencing racism every day. I mean, that's that's my reality. Um, but it's not. Uh, I am taking that pain because I am in pain um, like most black people are right now I'm taking that pain and I'm really channeling it um, towards progress and that's why I think calls like this are so important I love seeing my friend Justin Jones on the call thank you for being here Justin um, you know I love seeing all these people coming together because I know we all just want to be part of the solution um, that's what brings me here today um, I hope that that's a decent intro, but I just wanted to share a little bit about how I landed here. Thank you so much, Latoya. I think that storytelling is the exact right way to approach this, and your story is certainly compelling. Thank you for that background, and um, yeah, we'll have some good questions for you, I am sure.
So next up is Elizabeth Hunterton. She is a former nonprofit executive with 15 plus years of success in the industry. She is now an author, consultant, and speaker. She started life as an abandoned newborn found at the Reno International Airport. She became the first black woman to win Miss Nevada and represented the Silver State at the iconic Miss America pageant. Today, she shows individuals and organizations how to reach the pinnacle of potential by having impactful conversations in judgment-free zones, thus healing rifts. With arguably one of the most astonishing life experiences, her story of creating belonging by building bridges in difficult places will inspire and empower you to triumph over adversity connect authentically, and do your part to change the world. So please help me welcome Elizabeth Hunterton. Hi, thank you so much, Will, and, and thank you, Latoya, for sharing your story. Um, and thank you for having me here to have these, be part of this important conversation. I think I have a really unique perspective on race and racism. Um, as Will said, I was abandoned as a newborn at the Reno airport by my biological mother, who was presumably by my biological mother, who was Japanese, I found out last year. And um, unfortunately, me being mixed race would have brought disgrace to her family. So she left me at an airport in hopes that I would find a sense of belonging somewhere else. Um, I was adopted and raised by two white parents with a Native American and um, a Hispanic brother. We were raised in rural Nevada. And so my view with race and racism is not only comprehensive, but very multifaceted. And that said, I want to start by saying to those of you who are on today, tonight's call who are white, I know that racism hurts you too. I know that because I saw that the first time I asked my mom what the N-word meant or asked her why I was being chased by um, guys with shaved heads and pickup trucks. So I understand and I, I see your pain and I think that's an important part of this discussion. To my brothers, my sisters, my people of color, I see you, I stand with you, I hear you. And if there's anything more that I can be doing in my capacity to advance our efforts, tell me, because I'm here to walk beside you. To open, I want to share an encounter that I had um, last year with my friends in rural Nevada. Um, two of my, my friends who are white, we were in rural Nevada, and they insisted that we go into this cafe. And I kept saying, guys, no, this is not someplace where I really, I get out of the car. And they kept saying, you're being ridiculous. This is outrageous. You know, it's, it's 2019. We need to go and we, we're fine. We're fine. And um, ultimately, I succumbed to their, their pressure, and I, as I was walking, I was like, guys, I've been Black long enough to know this doesn't end well for me, but let's go. So we went in, and I immediately saw the two guys with shaved heads, swastikas, SS tattoos, cross hammers, and I knew them and recognized them because they are the same men who have been chasing me my entire life, hanging nooses on my locker, carving swastikas on my locker, throwing rocks at me, um, yelling explicatives, and threatening to put me in the ICU. So I recognize it when I see it immediately, but my friends don't. Not because they're racist, but because they have never been targeted by somebody that looks like that. And so they go sit down and their backs are to these men, and after a few minutes goes by, they looked at me and they said, what are you doing? You're just sitting there. Why, why aren't you ordering? Or you're not even looking at the menu. And I looked at them and I said, listen to what they're saying. And they were quiet and they looked around 
And they, and I was like, and they said, we don't hear anything. And I said, let me be more specific. Listen to what the two skinheads behind you are saying. And I will leave the explicatives out and the, the language, but my friends listened just in time for these two guys to say, this is our road. We want to keep it white. If we dragged her body up and down the street, maybe that would send a clear message to people who look like her that they're not welcome. And my friend said, oh, I'm going to say something. And I said, no, you're not. No, you're not. His friends will get here faster than ours will. And if you think that they won't hit a woman, you're wrong. So we're going to leave. I'm going to drive because I know how to get away from people like this. And the answer is yes. Yes, you can cry. I know this is scary. And the other answer is yes. Once we're safe, you can ask every uncomfortable conversation that you have or every uh, uncomfortable question that you may have. Thankfully, they didn't chase us long. Uh, we were able to get out of Beatty. And once we were back on the 95 and closer to Vegas, I pulled over and my friend started crying, um, which really broke my heart because that was the moment where I saw my friends lose their innocence um, because I know that was their first experience with racism. And I called my friend a couple weeks ago and I asked her, and I said, how, how did that shape your perspective of racism? And she said, you know, it didn't. I've always known that racism was disgusting. But what hurt so bad and was hard to reconcile was how oblivious I was to it. You told us that you, that you shouldn't go in there. You told us this wouldn't end well for you. And we insisted that we knew better. You recognized the two skinheads as soon as we walked in. We didn't. You told us to listen, and we couldn't hear until you specifically told us what to listen for. When I wanted to say something, you told me I couldn't do that because his friends would get here faster than ours. When we had to escape, you told me that you could drive better than I could because you knew how to escape people like this. I am not equipped to deal with racism. And we were having this conversation. I said, what, what were you most surprised by? And she said, I guess, I, and she kind of whispered and out of shame. And I said, judgment-free zone, you don't have to whisper. And she said, I guess I thought racism was confined to certain socioeconomic statuses or certain neighborhoods or certain education levels. But what I learned at that cafe in Beatty that day was that two people genuinely wanted to kill you only after doing several other awful things to you simply because of the color of your skin. Your socioeconomics, your white parents, your education level did not matter. And I am grateful now that we are creating these spaces, these judgment-free zones where we can have these difficult conversations. And as we enter tonight's, in this particular time, I ask that you please be mindful of my two friends, my two friends who, who told me how ridiculous I was being. I wasn't being ridiculous. And what my friend, I asked, I said, if you had one piece of advice for those, of, those that are entering these spaces, what would it be? And my friend said, we can't be so quick to minimize or diminish or dismiss something simply because it's not happening to us. And she's right. And if you're anything like my friends tonight, they felt helpless. And I have told my friends, you are anything but you have one of the most powerful responsibilities and positions in all of this. Now that you know that story and how real racism is, 
they now have an inherent responsibility to share that with audiences who would dismiss it coming from me. And yes, I'm educated, I'm successful, I have two white parents, I still get called an N-word. And just last month, I was racing up Charleston from a man in a um, pickup truck with a Confederate flag as he was yelling slurs and threatening to kill me while my sons were in the back. I don't inherit my white parents' privilege, but I need it. I need them to take my perspective and their experience with racism that they have seen through me to tables at seats that I will simply never be invited to. And that's what brings us here today. Those tables and that sharing of perspective is where change happens. Because when we learn another's perspective and we make a conscious choice to ensure that we stand with them so they don't experience this alone, that's where we create change. And by being here today, you're committed to creating that change and we're grateful. And my vision for this city is one that is going to take all of us. It starts with a universal acceptance that racism exists. Because if we can start from that very simple baseline, every conversation afterwards becomes much easier. I want our community to represent the diverse fabric that it is, where we have allies of all shades that collectively stand against racism and in one united cry say, it is not welcome here. I dream of a time where as a mother of two black sons, I'm not fearful for their encounters with law enforcement. And I envision a community built upon the unshakable foundation of our common ground, rather than one that's divided by differences. And I truly believe that that starts with conversations like this and evenings like this. So thank you so much for letting me be part of this. Wow. Well, thank you, Latoya, um, or excuse me, Elizabeth. Um, that was just, I'm sorry, you got me discombobulated here because that's so powerful and it resonates with some of my own experiences. And I love some of the, the key pieces that you point out because it is about building these bridges and having these honest, tough conversations and admitting, hey, we don't get it right. I'd like to go ahead and launch a poll before the commissioner shares. And this is just to get your feedback as an audience on a few things here in Vegas. So could we please go ahead and launch that poll? First question, is Las Vegas a compassionate place to live? Yes, no, is it a work in progress? Second question is, do you think the definition of racism is clear? Simple yes or no. And the last question is, when will racial equality be achieved? Never, not in my lifetime, will soon achieve or have achieved. We'll take about 30 seconds to let your tabulations come in. I'm gonna take the poll myself. Perfect. And while we're finishing up that poll, let me introduce you to a man that needs no introduction, but Clark County Commissioner Justin Jones was elected to Clark County Commission in 2018 and sworn in for his first term in January 2019. Commissioner Jones previously served in the Nevada State Senate from 2012 to 2014, where he was an assistant majority whip and chaired the Health and Human Services Committee. For many years, Commissioner Jones has provided pro bono representation to child victims of domestic abuse and neglect through the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada's Children's Attorney Project. 
Commissioner Jones is happily married with two adorable children, and in his spare time, he enjoys running, cycling, and hiking in Red Rock Canyon, one of my favorite places, and traveling to new and exotic places. Of course, we know we're not doing much traveling right now. So with that, Nikki, can you give us the poll results? Very interesting. Thank you. So I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Jones. Uh, thank you so much, Will, for that introduction and to Elizabeth and Latoya for sharing your uh, powerful stories. Um, I, I have to admit, a few weeks ago, I didn't know what anti-racism was. The, the concept of defunding the police seemed a little bit crazy. And frankly, I was afraid that saying Black Lives Matter uh, might offend some people. And like Elizabeth's friends, I was ignorant. I still am. George Floyd's death forced me, like so many others, to do some soul searching. Uh, I've had some tough conversations with Black friends and colleagues about what they experienced day in and day out. And to read up, uh, Dr. Ibra, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist has been an eye-opener for me. And one particular passage struck me hard, and I shared this on my Facebook page the other day. Dr. Kendi was describing his experience as a student advocating for the, the release of the Gena 6 and deciding what he was willing to commit for the cause. I want to quote from Dr. Kendi because, frankly, he uh, says it much better than I. He said, we formulate and populate and donate to cultural and behavioral and educational enrichment programs to make ourselves feel better, feeling they're helping racial groups when they're only helping or hurting individuals, when only policy changes helps groups. We arrive at demonstrations excited as if our favorite musician is playing on the speaker stage. We convince ourselves we are doing something to solve the racial problems when we are really doing something to satisfy our feelings. We go home fulfilled like we dined at our favorite restaurant, and this fulfillment is fleeting like a drug high. The problems of inequality and justice persist. They persistently make us feel bad and guilty. We persistently do something to make ourselves feel better as we convince ourselves we are making society better, as we never make society better. What if instead of feelings advocacy, we had an outcome advocacy that put equitable outcomes before guilt and anguish? What if we focused on our human and physical resources on changing power and policy to actually make society better, not just our feelings? Now, over the years, I've donated to many causes uh, and have been to demonstrations, including some of the most recent Black Lives Matter demonstrations. But reading that passage from Dr. Kendi really made me uh, look inside myself and ask, was I doing it just to make myself feel better? Or was I actually making society better. Now, I'm not a great orator. Uh, I admire my colleague, uh, Lawrence Weekly and so many others who can speak off the cuff and inspire people at any moment. My strength is, is really digging into the details and finding paths forward. That's what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, digging into Metro's use of force policies, their training manuals, their budget, watching body cam footage from the arrest of protesters and victims of violence like Byron Williams and frankly, talking to as many experts as I can. My hope is that with these compassionate Las Vegas conversations, we can talk about real, actionable, and achievable pathways to improve the lives of our community, especially our communities of color. I look forward to the discussion with you all today. 
Thank you. So I, I really appreciate that perspective and that honesty. That's exactly what we're, we're hoping to hear in this conversation is that honest perspective. Uh, I, I'll begin by saying thank you all that participated in the poll. The results were very interesting. And one that really stood out to me was the question of whether we would achieve racial equality, not even getting to racial equity, but racial equality in our lifetime. And 64% of you said that it wouldn't happen in your lifetime. So uh, that for me is a bit uncomfortable. I'll admit that. Um, finding a, a hope, a light in such a dark time can be difficult, but the format of this program is really such that we seek to highlight what is good, what has worked in the past, we build on the foundations of those things so that we can create the future that we envision. I don't think you'd be on this webinar if you didn't have at least the burning ember of hope buried deep within that you could make a difference and make a change. Otherwise, what's the point of investing this time? So I know that we can. And my first question hopefully will get us jump started in, into that direction. And this is really for Commissioner, but I'd love for everyone to chime in on this. And you mentioned that there was a, a fear of offense for simply saying Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter should be a, a very base, minimal expectation. And for anyone to, to fear or feel anxiety or fear around verbalizing that statement says so much. Can you expand upon why you felt that fear and maybe how you've overcome some of that? Well, I think that there is a, a an unfortunate per perspective, at least prior to the last few weeks, that if you said something like Black Lives Matter, that it has this political connotation. And it is not that at all. It's simply a recognition that uh, a population of people here in the U.S. and frankly in, in other countries have simply faced more persecution than the, the rest of us, certainly uh, I, as a white male who grew up with an education, has ever faced in my entire life. Um, and so uh, I think that this has definitely been an eye-opener for, uh, for everyone, particularly white America, who I think we were in a bubble thinking that because there were policies in place uh, and because we had never had bad experiences with the police, that somehow the uh, African-American and, and people of color had similar experiences. And, and I, I think watching the video of a white police officer uh, nonchalantly with his knee on the neck of George Floyd was that defining moment for the rest of us to, to finally understand what African-Americans and, and people of cover, color have faced for decades, if not hundreds of years. And so I, I'm just hopeful that, that, that it will have that kind of effect on people going forward. Um, unfortunately, we've seen too often in, in, past, uh, in, in past times that when incidences like this come up with Michael Brown, with so many other uh, African-Americans who, whose lives have been taken too short, uh, it hasn't resulted in any change. And we've seen some change, but I'll be the first one to admit, Clark County and, and frankly, Southern Nevada, we, we've done nothing even symbolic. You, you've, you've looked around the rest, the rest of the country, there are many city councils, county commissions, police departments, 
that have taken meaningful action over the last few weeks in response to the outcry from the Black Lives Matter movement. We've done nothing. I mean, to be completely frank, in Southern Nevada, we've done nothing. I'm optimistic that the legislature in the next few days uh, will take some action at the state level, but at the local level, we're not there. Uh, we need to have uh, many additional conversations about real action that can be taken. Are we in a better place than than some other communities? Sure, I think I think Metro has made some positive steps when it comes to their use of force policy and uh, de-escalation and the like. But to be quite frank, Minneapolis had taken many of the same steps before uh, before George Floyd was killed. Um, they had a de-escalation policy and a duty to intervene and all of the things that that we're talking about right now, and it didn't help George Floyd. And so I think there have to be these additional conversations about not just policies, but training um, and uh, changing the way we do policing altogether. Yeah, I think that those are all absolutely valid points. Thank you for, for bringing that up. The fact that we haven't done something, even symbolically, does show that we have a long way to go. So one of the other poll questions was, is, is Las Vegas a compassionate city? And I would say that until we are actually doing the acts, then we can't truly live up to, to that mantra. Miss um, LaToya, I want to ask you about feeling uncomfortable because the commissioner felt uncomfortable in saying Black Lives Matter. You have a level of discomfort in your day-to-day -day job because of who you represent. Do you mind speaking a bit to that? I don't mind at all. I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm, I, I can't speak on behalf of the police department because I'm not a police officer. Um, but what I can do is talk about the things that we do every single day to build bridges in the community, um, strengthen relationships in the community, um, all of those things happening way before um, uh, we witnessed what happened to George Floyd. And I think it would be um, disrespectful for me to move forward without really speaking the names of the people, some of the people that we've lost here. I mean, we've talked a lot about what's happening nationally and the loss um, and the experiences that um, are resulting in the outcrying for, for Black Lives Matter, but we need to make sure we, we show respect to, you know, Charles Bush and um, Tashi Farmer Brown and Byron Williams um, here in our local community. Um, but in terms of discomfort, Will, uh, it, I wouldn't say it's, I'm, I'm not uncomfortable at all. I'm just, I, I, it is an interesting conversation for me to have because I'm at an intersection that I think is unique in that I, I do support LVMPD and the work that they do in our community. And I also believe fiercely that Black Lives Matter. And for so many people, that those are sides. You have to take a side. And I don't believe in sides. I believe that the way we move forward is working together, listening to each other. Um, an example it, for, for everyone is my friend who is my shero. Her name is Roxanne McCoy, and she's the president of our local NAACP chapter. And she, you know, she's been at the table 
with um, LVMPD for a long time and, and the changes that our commissioner talked about, uh, the reform that's, that's taken place prior to uh, George Floyd, prior to um, uh, a lot of the things that we're seeing happening now is a result of her also being willing to sit at the table and being willing to have difficult conversations with people. Um, and, and her passion for speaking up for, for example, these three people, that I, these three amazing people that I just mentioned. Um, it is difficult to, to say that I'm a fierce advocate for LVMPD and I believe Black Lives Matter only because it's not, it's not difficult for me because I'm solid. It's difficult it, to deal with the reactions from that. That's what makes it hard um, because I think everyone's reaction is their truth. And so I try and respect that. Um, but for me, it, it's hard to yell Vegas strong when our officers are running towards bullets in one October, and then in the same moment, not support them and say they're all bad. So for me, there's a disconnect there, and that can sometimes be a difficult conversation, not for me to express how I feel, but in the responses. Um, but I'm going to always have that conversation, Will. I'm going to always um, be open to that dialogue. And, and, and that's truly grounded in the fact that I know there's always progress. There's, there's always, uh, not progress, but there's always um, room for improvement in any system, you know, agency, organization. Really what matters is how we approach that work. And if we're going to truly listen to each other, um, and if we're going to listen with openness and we're going to learn with openness, and partner with people like Justin and um, partner with people like, uh, like Jackie to make sure that all voices are being heard and that we're moving forward towards progress. I think that that's so important. And what I've, I've heard from all of our panelists really is starting you know, with your story, LaToya, about you know, five years after Martin Luther King was murdered that's when you entered the world, <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's, that's, that's a big deal. And that's not that, that's, that's not far away. I think sometimes no. we get in this space where we think perhaps these events are, are history, history, and they're, they're really not. They're like, what just happened? And so it's easy because we've never personally experienced some of these things to disconnect. And I say that as a young person, being able to disconnect and, and feel as though it's further away than it is. Mm. But then you do have that George Floyd incident which is now on film. And you have people saying, we've been saying this, we've been telling you over and over again, this is happening and you didn't believe us. Mm -hmm. But now you've seen it with your own eyes because it's been filmed. Yeah, so, and thank goodness, thank goodness for video footage, right? Like, thank goodness for our cameras because, um, you know, bless that man that he has now um, allowed us all to learn from him and to learn from the mistakes that were made um, and to hopefully become better Americans as a result. Absolutely. So Elizabeth, I wanna ask this of you. In that diner experience where you knew your life was in jeopardy, when you put yourself back in that moment, 
do you feel as though you had an advocate in law enforcement? Or do you feel as though you, you were just kind of a ship without a sail in that moment? So, so when, when, we were, when we were in Beatty, I had actually told my friends, I said, okay, if these guys get me, don't try to come after me. Like, there's not, if they get me, there's nothing you can do at that point. Call Las Vegas Metro. Do not call Beatty PD or, or let's not wait for the police department in Beatty. I don't know anything about that police department, um, but I knew I would have a better chance if law enforcement from a large urban metropolis because my fear was, is that in a small town like that, if they heard that the victim was black, that they may not come. And, and that's, that's one of the realities we face when we go into smaller rural towns. And I, again, I've been black long enough to know how that works. Um, so I, I, knew, I knew that some law, at some point, some law enforcement agency would hopefully come to my aid if I needed it. I, I think that my prayer has always been, whether it's for me or myself, that it's just, it's fast enough to save my life if it needs to be. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And, and you're right, I, I echo that experience growing up in Michigan in a big city, but I went to high school in a little town and to get there, I had to drive through rural Michigan. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't have any negative experiences, you know, thank God for that, but I could have. And yeah. so I'm, I'm keenly aware. Now, Commissioner, I want to ask, having heard these, these stories and recognizing that even today, those that have been protesting have been targeted and unlawfully detained, what can we do to make sure that that does not continue to happen? And how can we build upon the reforms that are already in place to, to make the police department more equitable for all people? Well, on the protest side, that is something that uh, I, I was able to work on with Metro and with, uh, with those who are on the side of legal observers. Uh, I had shared with some, some other folks that when I was in law school, I was a legal observer and I was wrongfully arrested. And so I sympathized very much so with the legal observers who were arrested during the protest. And so we were able to, uh, a few weeks ago, as, as protests were frankly widening down a bit, uh, to get Metro to, to make some modifications to how they issued dispersal orders and made them understand what legal observers do and what their role is. And so we were at least able to, to get some, some meaningful action on, on that specific uh, area of concern. But again, that was only one minor piece to allow people to, to exercise their First Amendment rights. With regards to the larger issue of how do we move forward on making uh, meaningful change so that uh, the, the protests don't go without action, uh, you know, that is something where we, we really have to identify what are the, what are the action items that we're going to work on together collectively? Um, who are the people that have the ability to make them happen? Uh, one of the most interesting pieces of, of this whole experience is, is trying to understand who has jurisdiction uh, over, over Metro. And the answer under statute, working with our district attorney, is that because the sheriff is, is elected, uh, the, the sheriff has really uh, complete authority over their, their policies. Now, we do at the county and the city provide 
uh, funding. And so we can have some influence in, in the budget process on, on how they go about things. Uh, but um, both the district attorney and uh, the sheriff are, are elected by the people. And so they do have their, uh, their jurisdiction to, to make those types of policy decisions. And so again, it's, it's incumbent on us when it comes to those types of, uh, those types of, of um, policy issues, we need to bring pressure on the elected sheriff and, and the elected district attorney to make different decisions and, and adopt different policies. And I think that certainly Sheriff Lombardo has expressed openness to at least some of the things that have been put out there. Uh, when asked a question about uh, the concept of defund the police, he didn't immediately shut it down. He said that the, the, the police have been asked for years to take on additional responsibilities when it comes to uh, mental health, drug addiction, homelessness, et cetera. And, uh, and so I think that there are opportunities. And, and, and in fact, this week I've met with their homeless outreach team um, and had some conversations uh, about how we can partner better with our metro social services folks uh, to make that happen. And so I think there are definitely areas in which we can all agree and, and move forward to try and de-escalate a lot of those situations that have led to unnecessary deaths. Byron Williams has, has been mentioned. I will say his name over and over again. He was pulled over for, uh, for riding a bike without a, a light. Um, I'm a cyclist. I can tell you that as, as a white guy, I've never been pulled over for not having a light. Um, but Byron was, and he ended up dead uh, because an officer uh, had his knee on his back. And, um, and no action has ever been taken with regards to the officers in the Byron Williams case. And the public fact-finding review still hasn't been conducted. And that's something that I have asked slash demanded go forward as soon as possible. So there are a lot of things that still need to happen, and we need to make sure that the right people are taking the right actions. Like I said, I, I have complete faith in our Attorney General, Aaron Ford, uh, in our Speaker of the State Assembly, Jason Frierson, and many others at the state level, uh, that they are going to make the, the right decisions and take the right actions. And I know that they are pushing forward with criminal justice reform. Um, and taking the actions that need to be taken at the state level. And I think it's really at the local level that we need to make sure that we have the right people um, and put pressure where it needs to go. When we talk about having the right people, putting the pressure where it needs to go, making meaningful change and reform, uh, eight can't wait comes to mind. And we've gotten some great questions that have come in through the chat. I can't even keep up with everything. So please continue the conversation there. For those on Facebook, chime in. Those questions are being sent in as well to the Zoom link. But with the eight can't wait, it, it's, it's proven to reduce violence. Is that something that we can enact here? And is demilitarizing the police something that's a priority for for your administration, you know, for the folks that you work with day to day? And are there people that may be resistant to this? I'm asking a lot of questions at once because I want a lot of information from you. But Elizabeth Latoya, please feel free to chime in as well. Yeah, with regards to eight can't wait, uh, I have sat down with Metro to go through every single one of them. Uh, Metro and or the state have already uh, put into place in their in their policies 
most of the eight can't wait items. And in fact, yesterday you may have seen that on the chokeholds and strangleholds, uh, Metro released new guidance on their use of force policy that elevated the lateral vascular neck restraint, which is sort of a, it's, it, they, they, they describe it as different than a chokehold, uh, but is still uh, a situation when an officer puts his, his or her arm around your neck. Um, but they, they changed their policy yesterday to, to make it so that it is the highest level uh, when the officer is facing immediate threat of, of, of danger um, for that. Uh, de-escalation is already required. Um, required warning is already required. Uh, comprehensive reporting is something that I think that Metro does a lot of, but still there's a lot of work that can be done on that uh, use of force continuum already adopted, um, due to intervene already adopted. So a lot of the eight can't wait uh, items have already been adopted in policy. But again, what I mentioned before is policy is great, but if it's not trained, if if people aren't trained and if if people aren't held accountable when they're not followed, then it's then it's useless. Um, and so we have to make sure that both the training uh, and the enforcement is there. Thank you for that. So we have a question from someone that is in the audience, and it's none other than Ender Austin. And uh, just give a quick. 10 second introduction of who you are and then ask your question. Yes, sir. Um, thank you all so very much. I apologize. My camera angle is terrible. My name is Ender Austin Third. Uh, I'm a local pastor. Um, also, I work in the office of Congressman Stephen Horsford um, and really excited to be here this evening. Um, Commissioner Jones, I appreciate uh, so much of the information you've given us today. I do have a quick question for you. Uh, I'm curious to know about the, um, the use of force policy. One thing that was really interesting to me is that they can use force even when someone is complying with the risk. Uh, you talked about my fraternity brother, Atar, um, at a couple of the meetings ago. Um, and I was there that evening when he was arrested with, uh, and we had a lot of force applied to us and everyone was complying. I'm curious as to why force would be necessary when someone complies with the rest. Uh, I, I don't think that it's appropriate. I, I obviously am not a law enforcement officer, but I, I think certainly in, the situations during the protests that there were several situations like you're describing with with both you and Atar and several others uh, that uh, folks were trying to comply with the dispersal order and walking away uh, as they were supposed to and the, the use of force was inappropriate. In terms of the run-of-the-mill situation in which an officer uh, approaches an individual and if that person is compliant, I don't know what the justification would be for uh, using force uh, if someone is being is being compliant. Um, so I I think the de-escalation policy is is definitely an improvement. Again, it's all about training and enforcement. If the, the officers don't actually follow the de-escalation policy. Thank you. Great, great question. And to really appreciate you being on tonight. And that's an important question to ask. Uh, the, the issue of <laughs> resisting arrest, you can be arrested for resisting arrest and that's your only offense. You know, that's clearly a problem. And I think what, what he's getting at is these policies are in place. And, you know, I'm appreciative of all the changes that are happening. 
And we need to work on a culture shift, a change where black skin isn't automatically seen as a threat. So if an officer simply feels threatened by the color of someone's skin, then that that de-escalation doesn't necessarily work for them. Can you talk to, and, and this is again for any of the panelists, any of the demands for the families affected by police brutality. There were 35 demands put together through the, looks like the force trajectory project. And we want to hear, you know, how can we actually change the culture, shift the spirit of the department? And what have we done, I guess, so far to make that happen? Or what have we seen? I mean, so I, and I want to be very clear. I have no association with LV um, MPD. Um, from what I have seen from the outside looking in, for those of you who've lived in Las Vegas for the past 10 years, most of you know what our police department was 10 years ago. And um, at a time where we had some of the highest officer involved killing rates, um, the reform has started. And I think it start. I would say it started probably about 10 years ago when it really reached its peak and we were in the news for all the wrong reasons. Um, I have seen from my perspective, and again, this is just as somebody who lives in this community and wants to know how my community is being engaged. Um, I have seen the deliberate efforts of officers going to schools and talking to, to the community, bridging that gap. Um, and I was talking to somebody who works at the, the Fusion Center, which is um, the anti-terrorism unit. And he had said, and I said, well, what do you, if you had to name the most valuable thing that you guys do, what is it? And he was like, we fire people. We fire people a lot and we will most likely always have a shortage. We don't have people that have 18, 18 complaints. Um, so I, I, and again, I'm not saying that Metro is perfect. I think they're far from it. And I think we, any police department has a long way to go. Um, and I, I can't speak to the, to the demands, uh, the 35 demands that were listed, and I'm hoping that one of the other panelists is better versed in that than I am. Um, I, just, I just want to acknowledge, because again, for those of us who lived here 10 years ago, it was a much scarier place to live. Um, so I just wanted, wanted to say that just to get it off my chest. And to share a little bit um, from my perspective, um, the foundation, you know, invests in community safety programs and community outreach programs. And so some of those programs are in high, all those programs are primarily in high um, uh, crime areas um, and also in some areas where they're highly concentrated um, community members of color and they have an impact. I mean, it's you know, there's, there's statistics that show that. I mean, if you take a look at um, kind of what Elizabeth was talking about, about, you know, 10 years ago and the impact of these programs and the amount of um, the reduction in crime, you know, in the Bolden Area Command since that program kicked off, there have been, you know, over the past year, almost zero murders in that area. And that was a hotbed of danger um, and death. So, you know, it really goes to show that these conversations and the community programming is such an important piece of, of our progress. Um, and I'm hopeful that we can continue 
continue along those lines. I, I, um, Will, I don't speak on behalf of the department, so I can't really speak to the 35 demands and where that stands. Um, I'm hopeful maybe that the commissioner has um, some information or, um, you know, maybe we can get some sort of response from all of Yeah, next week when the captain is on, we will ask that again. Yeah, I'm sure Sasha will be able to speak to that. And so just real quick, I don't, I don't have all 35 of the demands in, in front of me. And I think some of them, um, like asking the sheriff and the district attorney to immediately resign are, 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 are unlikely to happen. But many of the other things that are listed uh, on those demands, I think, are either in process or things that we can continue to work on. Uh, with regards to the efforts by Metro, I think Elizabeth and LaToya both mentioned essentially community-oriented policing is a model that's been adopted across the country and is a benefit. Is it perfect? No, absolutely not. But it's definitely something that's allowed for uh, crime reduction. Uh, we have implemented shot spotter programs. Those are technology that's used to identify when firearms are discharged. Many people in the African-American and Latino communities aren't comfortable calling the police, as has been mentioned. And so this technology allows Metro to go out and solve crimes, even when people in the neighborhood might not be comfortable uh, making those types of calls. And then finally, uh, with the Citizen Review Board, um, we have a new executive director who coincidentally uh, was appointed full-time to that position just as the protests were happening. And I can tell you from having sat down with her last week that she is committed to making sure that Citizen Review Board is uh, a more representative body, um, that, it that the members of the body are more representative of the community, of communities of color, uh, and that the training isn't going to be one-sided where it is right now. They have to go through the Metro Citizens, uh, Citizens Academy, but there's no training sort of to get the other perspective of victims of, of crimes. And so uh, I know she is, is committed to making sure that that is really an opportunity for enforcement when officers uh, are the subject of complaints from, from citizens. So we have reached the last few minutes of our time together. I want to thank our panelists for your contributions. This conversation really, maybe we should have scheduled, you know, three hours because there's there's so much meat here. I thank all of our guests for, for tuning in and chatting and sharing these questions and comments. I want to bring the Reverend back, Reverend Jackson. We had a comment that mentioned or, or kind of piggybacked off of your introduction, which talks about the fact that all of this really starts in the heart. How do you as a pastor view the role of whiteness in our society and in regards to policing and how those bridges can be built so that we don't see each other as white versus black, police versus citizen, any of those things? How can we really talk to the hearts tonight? Thank you. That's an excellent question. I believe one way we can talk to the hearts, first of all, is to talk to each other. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, well, no, I'm not prejudiced. To say I'm not, I'm, my, my parents owned slaves, but I did not. But then again, if they did and they got over, then you, you benefited from their misunderstanding or their bad doing, so to speak. All right. So when you speak to the heart, or from the heart, you know, you, you, you feel someone's pain. It's called empathy. You know, I believe so strongly in community policing. 
after spending the 20 some odd years with LAPD as a senior chaplain, okay? You know, I saw both sides of humanity and what changes need to be made in small cities and major cities. Someone already mentioned this, that each police department is individual, okay? No police department runs exactly the same as the other. If you wanna make positive change, you need to make it from the inside. How do you make it from the inside in a place like Las Vegas? Go to the polls. If the sheriff's not doing what you want them to do, vote them out, vote someone in there that's in the same sense that you're in, okay? If this a politician is not doing right, go to the polls. Vote someone in the place that's of the same mindset that you are, that understands and feels the, the empathy that you feel for your community. So if I have to leave you with just one thing, to open up your heart, open up your mind, and do what's right. Awesome. I think that that is a great way to close. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I have to say thank you to our amazing partners, HRC, ADL, uh, City of Las Vegas Mayor's Faith Initiative, the Episcopal Diocese of Nevada, Faith Organizing Alliance, Nevada Minority Health and Equity Coalition, the Interfaith Council, Moonridge Group, and Gard Jameson. Thank you so much for, for facilitating this platform and, and making sure that we were able to to do what we did tonight. We want to walk away with some action steps. We want to take, as, as the Reverend said, we want to go to the polls and vote. We want to make sure that the conversation doesn't stop here. We have two more scheduled conversations, Thursdays at six, same time, same place. We encourage you to share this and invite more people to the table. We want every single person that has a stake in this to be at the table, to have their voices heard, and to be a part of the change that we're making. Great things are certainly in store for us as a city, as a community, as a state, as a nation, and as a global society. And you all are vital to making sure that that happens. So from my heart to yours, thank you for joining in this time. I encourage you to visit CompassionateLV.org and take a look at the Charter for Compassion. Compassion can be seen as something that's passive, but it's absolutely not. Dr. King talked about direct action, nonviolence with direct action, and that's what we're for. So the conversations will continue next week. And again, from my heart to yours, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you then.